Welcome to Pragmatic. Pragmatic is a discussion show contemplating the practical application of technology. By exploring the real-world trade-offs, we look at how great ideas are transformed into products and services that can change our lives. Nothing is as simple as it seems. Pragmatic is part of the Engineered Network. To support our shows, including this one, head over to our Patreon page. And for other great shows, visit engineered.network today. I'm your host, John Chigi, and today I'm joined by Vic Hudson. How's it going, Vic? I'm good, John. How are you? I am very good, thank you. I would uh, like today to talk about something that's um, a little bit different, I suppose, for the show. Um, It's about how the sea levels keep rising. Have you heard of this phenomenon? I I think I have heard a little about it, yeah. Yeah. Some people say that the sea levels are rising because um, of global warming, I guess. And it's something that... Has it's always been in the news for the last probably twenty years, thirty years, I suppose. And mm-hmm. there's been a whole bunch of documentaries and you know scary scaryumentaries. Is that such a thing? Those sorts of things, you know. I think that is uh, such a thing. Yeah, and uh, the one that comes to mind first of all is uh, the one that Al Gore did, uh, "An Inconvenient Truth." Did you ever see that one? I did. It's been quite a while, though. Yeah, that's okay. That's okay. Uh, the other one, uh, which was the "No, it's not happening" one, is one uh, by uh, was done in the UK called the Great Global Warming Swindle, uh, which is the "No, it isn't happening" um, <laughs> side of things. But I don't think I caught that one. Yeah, no, that's okay. It's less well known, but uh, the fact. But is, I remember Gore's made a lot of a lot of noise when it was out. Oh yeah, we're talking about it. And- yeah, oh, I did. It did, and and this is the thing: is that I don't want. Okay, the way I want to tackle this particular topic is that I don't actually want to debate uh, or even get involved with the discussion of whether or not um, whether or not global warming is caused by carbon dioxide emissions or, or methane or or anything like uh, any like the greenhouse effect or whatever you want to call it. You know, all of these different theories as to exactly what's causing it. Irrespective, um, I'm not interested in talking about that. And there's a whole bunch of reasons why I'm not. One is I'm not a climatologist. Uh, I'm not. I'm I'm an engineer. And whilst I have my opinions about that, I don't feel like I'm qualified to debate or discuss that. So you may think, well, okay, what's there to talk about then if you're not going to talk about that? Uh, because I guess also just uh, before I m- talk about exactly what I want to talk about is is the the whole slither of human recorded knowledge that we have tells us that the sea levels are rising. So I'm not going to debate why. I just know that they are, and mm-hmm. the, the the issue therefore becomes how do you deal with it. So. And I guess the other problem is the reason there's so many for and against arguments, and people say, "Oh, yes, it's happening." Or, "No, it's not." Is that the changes that we see are all everything's cyclic. There's there's daily fluctuations. The sun goes up, sun goes down. You know, the the moon goes around the earth, and therefore tides rise, tides fall, seasons change. You know, year to year, and you know we have decade over decade increases and decreases. We have averages and such. So you really need to plot a heck of a lot of data over a very, very long period of time to notice any trends. And any trends... Mm-hmm. You, yeah, exactly. And any trends you see are going to be very subtle. So, you're 0.2 of a degree Celsius or 
you know, or one degree Fahrenheit or whatever change over a 50-year period is going to be extremely subtle to, te- to, to detect. But that doesn't mean that it's not happening. So obviously there's recording measurements uh, error. So you've got recording uh, errors in your measurements and so on. So how far back do you want to go? People quote, oh, well, you know, we did the, we looked at um, tree core samples and ice core samples and going back a hundred thousands of years. And it's like, yeah, but that's not as accurate as, you know, a calibrated thermometer, you know, wet dry bulbs and digital thermometers and satellite imagery and, you know, radar measurements and all of these things that we can do in the last 20, 30 years, for example, are extremely accurate. So, you know, there's yeah. a whole lot of doubt. And the other problem is that we as human beings, we really don't live that long, you know, statistically uh, compared to how no. long the planet's been spinning, right? And when we're alive, yeah. you know, we, we, think, we think hand to mouth and we have terrible memories. So, it's like, oh, it's a hot summer. Yeah, these summers are getting hotter. And it's like, well, actually, no, the previous summer was the coldest on record for the last three decades. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. You know, so it's all very... That's why I think it's just some people argue about it because it is difficult to spot the trend. So, let's start with what we can prove, what we do know. So... If we look at records, there is absolutely no question that sea levels are rising. And the evidence Check. suggests, yes, definitely happening. So the evidence suggests that over a millennia or so, the sea levels rise and fall by about several hundred feet regularly, hmm. irrespective of whether human beings were present or not. Now, it's a cyclical thing. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's cyclical. Exactly right. So again, why... Well, that's complicated, but not interested in that. If we just sort of look at the information that we have more recently at hand, in February 2016, which is, well, the month we're recording this, uh, NASA's GISS surface temperature analysis showed that for the first time with modern accurate temperature recording instruments, the average temperature on Earth's surface has risen by one degree Celsius. So that goes back a hundred and something years. Now, mm-hmm. it's a fact that water will expand as its temperature increases in accordance with well-established laws of physics. So water's a liquid, there's volumetric expansion, and there's a coefficient of volumetric expansion. And the funny thing about water is that actually that coefficient changes based on the temperature itself. So the rate at which it expands varies based on the temperature of the liquid itself which is kind of funky, but there you have it. Anyway, but at nominal sea temperature range at the surface, it's about 0.000207 per degree Celsius. Not a lot, but there's a heck of a lot of water in the ocean. And obviously as well, that temperature won't reach all the way down to the bottom of the ocean. It'll be present in the top few feet or meters of the ocean predominantly. But again, world's a big place. That's a lot of surface area, a lot of volume and a lot of water. So it doesn't take that much, even though the expansion isn't that great. There is certainly going to be an impact. There's no question. And there's also the not insignificant amount of water that's going to be caused by uh, by ice. So as ice melts, obviously that water goes and you know dumps into the ocean. Well, that water's got nowhere else to go except to rise the average sea level. So in North America, 
the National Snow and Ice Data Centre has been collecting data about ice pack in the Arctic for a long time. And they've noted that this year, 2016, has had the lowest amount of sea ice in recorded satellite image history. So that's not so good. So obviously, less ice, more liquid water. But the, the problems... cubes are melting. Yeah, they are. Exactly. <laughs> Need to add more ice cubes. <clears throat> oh, dear. Anyway, if the snow falls on land, though, that's kind of a win because it means that it can freeze and it locks that water up, doesn't go back into the ocean again. Mm-hmm. So it's more, more like... Because uh, the Arctic's kind of different because the Arctic is almost entirely water. So, you know, obviously there's not this parts of Greenland, but Antarctica is a bigger area as well. But there's other glaciers all around the world and they're all melting. They're not, they're not, they are, they are slowly melting. The water that was trapped in them, well, it's now flowing into the ocean and the level has only one way to go and that's up. Mm-hmm. Okay. So now I've sufficiently worried everyone listening. Let's stop and take a breath. Get your water wings, people. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Oh, dear. Float in Australia, we call them um, uh, floaties. And in uh, the UK, I think they call them angel wings or something. I forget what it is, something like that anyway. But yeah, I know what you mean. Um, so long as it's not one of those inflatable things with a rubber ducky head at the front that looks just weird and wrong. But never mind. Confusing too. I can picture you in that. <laughs> oh, God. No, that's disturbing. <laughs> that's just not right at all. Okay, cool. Well, maybe we should keep some of those in a spare just in case. But anyway, all right. But the fact is, anyway, so far as sea level rises go, it is real. It is happening. And since about 1992, uh, the Topex Poseidon satellite and several others since then has been launched have been accurately measuring the mean sea level. And in the last 25 years, the sea levels have risen 3.2 millimeters, uh, plus or minus 0.4 of a millimeter of error. So that's just in the last the last twenty five years. So it's not much, but you know it is going up. Reports of it's a cumulative thing. Uh, yeah, it's going to matter eventually. Yeah, the, the the exactly it starts somewhere, and three point two millimeters is nothing really. But it's more interesting. Well, I'll get to it. So the reports of the impacts on global warming on island nations island nations in the pacific you know like uh like palau and um tuvalu mm-hmm. i think they're a little bit questionable because you know they claim that people have abandoned the islands due to rising sea levels and erosion as a direct result but the reality is it's actually more driven by unemployment um so i i'm not sure i put a link to one of those alarmist articles in the show notes if you want to read it, but read the comments at the bottom and especially the comments that are from people that actually came from Palau. So definitely mm-hmm. worth the worth the read. So there's there's a little bit of scaremongering going on out there. That's also undeniable. Anyway, but the CSIRO's Antarctic Climate and Ecosystem Cooperative Research Center website is probably the most interesting set of projections. And that's based on the satellite data I just referred to before. And it correlates that with known measurements and predicted ice sheet melt contributions. And according to their projections, by 2100, that's another 85 years time, the worst case mean sea level rise will be about 81 centimeters. That's 32 inches. So that's their worst case. And if you look at the trend line for the last 25 years, 
it's unfortunate, but the trend line seems to be very close to their worst case curve uh, line. But it's not ac- it's not exact. Obviously, it goes up and down, and it could trend down again. It might level off. Yeah, you know, it's it's hard to be sure. It's just a prediction. So you know, it's complicated. But anyway, since we have developed um, as a, a civilization, we've got very very accurate topographical maps about all the world's land masses. It's pretty easy to actually overlay the predicted sea level rises with those maps to see exactly what it's going to look like. Now, in Australia, there's a site called Oz Coasts. And, you know, uh-huh. rather, rather selfishly, I decided to look at what Brisbane would look like. And the impact to the CBD with that level rise in 85 years' time is pretty negligible. And for those people that are from Brisbane or have been to Brisbane, you'll know that the CBD and South Bank, they sit up uh, above the river level by a fair way, you know, several, quite a few metres. Uh, mind you, when it floods, it's going to be a bit nastier. But anyway, so Sydney... Um, you know, might be a little bit more interesting. Some of the waterfront properties won't fare so well, but it's not going to be catastrophic. You'll still be able to get around. Um, Melbourne, for some odd reason, has a big no data sign in the middle of it. Don't know why. Never mind that. Uh, But the visible parts that you can see, well, they're not too bad either. And then I thought, okay, well, let's have a look at the States. So I checked out around San Francisco. Some parts of Mission Bay and Hunter's Point are going to get their feet wet. Unsurprisingly, the Coit Tower will be unscathed, as you'd hope. In New York, the southern end of Manhattan around Battery Park for several blocks will be a bit damper than normal, but the vast majority of Manhattan will be fine. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could go on all day, right, about all these different cities around the world, but honestly, a one metre or three foot rise in the mean sea level will not greatly affect most cities on an average day. But that's not so much the problem. The problem's more about the storm surges and flooding yeah. caused by reduced drainage rates because uh, yeah, as the sea level is higher, yeah, the king tides that are going to come in are going to cause the, the biggest issues. They may not happen all the time, but they'll happen regularly enough to be quite a pain in the neck. So, yeah. yeah. So, once you hit big numbers in sea level rises, like five or six metres, um, yeah, and it's we're way, way that's way too far out to accurately predict at this point. You cannot look at anyone with a straight face and say, "Oh, yeah, in twenty one fifty, it's going to be six meters." No, 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 no. But anyway, um, so just to turn the problem back around, I just decided for fun. I have a strange idea of fun. Clearly, um, how high would the sea level need to be before my house started to have water flowing through it? And it needs to be thirty two meters or one hundred and five feet. So we're a ways off that, at least for my house. But anyhow, all right, that's the alarmist section over. <laughs> okay, ding ding, ding ding. Moving on. Um, so <sighs> let's see. So it, I guess um, the thing is, when I started doing engineering, I, I had a very different idea of what the point of engineering was. I thought it was just like inventing cool stuff and you know, mm-hmm. building and fixing cool stuff. And the thing that I learned the more I did, the more I did engineering was that engineering is more about uh, longevity up to a point. So when we're asked to design something, you know, from a civil point of view, it could be a structure, which is probably the most directly impacted by things like sea level rises. You know, a facility of some kind, a, a network. We have a design life. 
you know, that's the amount of time that the system is expected to survive. And we'll select components that have that cost trade-off and say, right, well, I could build you something that's going to last a thousand years, but it's going to cost you 200 times as much. Would you like something that'll last 50 years? Oh, that's much more manageable. Yeah, that we can do that for, you know, like five bucks. No worries. There you go. So that design life drives the cost, the complexity, the um, just the difficulty of the project. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very, very important factor. But when we decide mm-hmm. things like design life, it's very singular. You know, it's like, well, we are going to build a bridge. We're going to build a building. We're going to build a road. What's its design life? 50 years, 100 years? What sort of maintenance do we expect before we're going to have to tear the thing down and build another one? People don't realize, but when you build a bridge, you don't build a bridge to last forever. You build a bridge to last for 100 years, 200 years. And you inspect that bridge yeah. and after a while, it's going to get like corrosion, cracks in it, damage, and it's going to become more expensive to maintain it than it is to just build a new one. And that's when you decide to build a new bridge next to the old one and tear the old one down. And that's just what they do. So the thing that occurred to me, Vic, when I was thinking about this is that it's very singular. You know, how many people mm-hmm. approach a city that way or a town? I think very few townships, towns, cities, whatever, have a design life set to them because no one sees it that way. We think it's always going to be there. Yeah. I guess I guess you could I guess you could argue some of these mining towns that that's just a bunch of demountable buildings. And like the camps that I've spent a bit of time at in the last couple of years when the, the construction phase. But I suppose you could argue that if you knew you only had 50 years worth of copper in a hole in the ground, you would only design the town to support that for 50 years. And then after that, who cares? Because you're just going to shut up shop and, you know, put everything back all environmentally nicely. And that's the end of that chapter. You know, but, but when they were building Manhattan, did they stop and think... You know, maybe it's not going to be here in another 100, 200, 300 years. Nope, I don't think they did. So, that's the funny thing about engineering is that is that towns and cities seem to be treated differently. Like they're going to be there forever, but they're not going to be. And this is the problem. So, what if we did design our cities with a design life? And if we did, at what point would you abandon ship? I mean, that's actually a really terrible mixed metaphor. Because after all, it's the the ocean that's coming to you. But anyway, but you know, know, So here's the thing, right? Can you even protect cities against rising sea levels? And the short answer is sometimes, (laughs) because nothing's as simple as it seems, right? (laughs) Yeah. So I thought it might be interesting to see if we accept. Okay, so here's the fact: we accept sea level is rising. Yes, it's slow. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's going to have a minimal impact, at least from a static point of view. But from a storm surge point of view, uh, it's going to be a problem. So how do we how do we deal with this? And we can. Act, there are already two fantastic examples of how this is being handled already. And the first one for those people in London, have you ever heard of the Thames Barrier? I have. Excellent. Have you seen the episode of Doctor Who where they went to the Thames Barrier? Um, before you go any further, I can unequivocally say yes. <laughs> Probably <laughs> so. 
If we're talking, yes. if we're talking New Who, most definitely I've seen everything. Yeah, uh, the the sicker if, if it's classic Who, there's still pretty good odds I've seen it. Mm. Excellent. Yes, it was a good episode that one. Go Donna. Anyhow, sorry, geeking out there. Anyway, so that was built in 1982, and it was built to protect London from flooding caused by king tides. So, that's an example that exists right now. It was built, what's that, 82, 2016, so that's uh, 34 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I need to calculate, do that kind of math in my head. I think that's right. Anyway, so, that's that's a recent example right there. Now, a far better example is an entire country. You ever heard of the Netherlands? I have. See, I've never been to the Netherlands, but I hear that they I've have... I've never been, but I've heard of it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I've heard that they sell some interesting stuff there that you can, you know... I have heard that as well. I've heard that a lot of that <laughs> is, is a little bit of misinformation, but... <laughs> I, I don't know. I think the rumors are just rumors, really. I, I, anyway, so who knows? Maybe someday I'll go there, but we'll see. But I think that Holland's... Sorry, the Netherlands, I should say, uh, is incredibly impressive for what it's managed to achieve in uh, from a civil engineering point of view. It's absolutely incredible. So, some people know this, some people don't. So, I thought it might be interesting just to do a little bit of history of how the Dutch have dealt with this problem. Because in the Netherlands, they've been reclaiming land from the ocean for hundreds of years. And I say reclaiming land from the ocean, it's a funny way of thinking about it. It's like... They didn't stand the shoreline and said, right, that's it, that's my land and shout the ocean. Although maybe some of them did. But anyway, also you've got to realize that when the Netherlands was first um, way, 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 way back 2,000 years ago, the majority of the Netherlands was just swamp. It was peat, swamp land, and it was just uninhabitable. You couldn't build on it, you just sink. You walk on it, you just sink. It was just a swamp, most of it anyway. So, they kind of figured, well, we got this bit of land, what can we do with it? Mm-hmm. So, what they've done successively over many hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years is that they have gradually extended the dams and they called them dikes. And they first started to build them just to hold back storm surges. And when they did, they realized it was possible to actually then use the land that was between the seawall or the dike uh, and mm-hmm. where they wanted to live. And they could actually start to control their destiny. So, the methods that the Dutch developed, I think, are going to start to be employed more and more in different cities around the world as we try, as we turn civil engineering as a way to protect our existing investments in low-lying cities from rising sea levels. Of course, the problem is that there are simply going to be some cities that you just cannot economically protect. It's just the Dutch and the Netherlands did what they did because they had a geographical advantage, an unfair advantage, you might mm-hmm. even say. The topography made it possible. It won't always be possible to do it without spending billions and billions, if not trillions of dollars, at which point some people will simply draw the line in the sand and say, you know what, hey, it's been fun, but abandon ship, uh, abandon town, abandon city, oh well. Um, that's going to be a terrible event if and when that we get well when we get to that point. I think there's no if about it; it's just a when. Yeah, may not be in my lifetime. Maybe don't know. We'll see. 
So, what did the Dutch do exactly? Well, there's a lot to be learned about what they did, so let's go over it. So, between about 500 BC and 700 AD, there were several cycles of habitation and abandonment pretty much in timing in timing with the sea levels rising because the sea levels have been rising and falling falling periodically cyclically as i said for a very long time before we were ever burning a heck of a lot of stuff so if you, you know again co2 argument whatever right so the first dikes were actually just uh very low embankments they were about a meter or so high and they were built specifically to surround fields so the idea is you'd build up these embankments to keep the storm surges out and then the fields, your crops, inside the embankments, like big squares, big rectangles, circles, essentially they were protected from the ocean. Mm-hmm. And that also protected their the you know, that, that protected their crops. They also would build their houses on mounds. They would build these mounds and they called them terps, as in T E R P S terps as opposed to ter- not terps, as in mineral turpentine. Anyway, so yes, and they would build their houses on top of these mounds and that would keep, of course, their houses from getting flooded in storm surges. Yeah, worked mm-hmm. okay. So around about the ninth century, the sea was on the advance again and many of the terps needed to be raised. But as they were raising the terps and then rebuilding the houses on top of them, they essentially had had combined a bunch of these single terps together. So, so like the each of the mounds, think of them like a watchtower, if you'd like. And what they did is they built these raised walkways between them, the pathways between them, and that would connect these. Mm-hmm. The, what these terps grew into villages, and as they then built these pathways between them and built them up and built them up to be all weather raised pathways, they essentially they essentially joined a bunch of these together, and that became the first recorded dikes. So by about 1250 AD, most of the dikes had been connected together and they created a continuous wall and that acted as a defense against the the sea. And driven by sort of, I guess the the population was increasing because of this and there was a, you know, apparently there was a fair bit of funding and motivation from the local churches at the time. But what's interesting is what happened next. Over a few hundred years of the tides cycling in and out, the artificial barrier that they created created a turbulent section out from the base of the wall. And what this this turbulence created was a whole new layer of sediment. And that sediment layer was deposited just further enough out from the base of the wall, uh, base of the dike wall, along long sections of the wall it built up to such a degree that only the high tides would come over them or first there was a storm surge. So then they had the idea, well, geez, okay, we could so just... a little bit of added buffer. Exactly. So we could build another wall. So let's do it. So they started to build another wall. And this allowed them to essentially build a new ring of dikes that were further out to sea. So the shoreline essentially was moved further out towards into the ocean. Well, what was the ocean? Mm-hmm. So the process, obviously that, that sort of process wasn't always possible, but the vast tracts of their coastline, it was. And gradually over many, many hundreds of years, the dikes spread further out into the sea and reclaimed more and more land. And just to give you an idea of, the, the dikes, like how many raised dikes there are in the entire country of the Netherlands. As of late last year, 
the dike network is approximately 22,500 kilometers long. That's 14,000 miles of dikes. That's a fair bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, go the Netherlands, I guess. <laughs> I also mentioned before... They're fighting back. <laughs> they are. They are. Take that, nature. So, anyway, um, that was uh, what they did with the dikes. Just as an aside also, um, before I wrap up on this, is I guess the question the question uh, for the Netherlands also wasn't just keeping the ocean out. It was draining the swamps and converting the swamp lands into something usable. And... Mm-hmm. One of the things that I always finished is why is why is it they always have the big windmills, you know, the big windmills, because whenever you see a postcard from like uh-huh. know, Amsterdam or whatever, there's always a there's always a conveniently placed windmill somewhere in the background. It's like oh look windmill, nice. Why? Anyway, yeah. Well, they were draining the swamps, so what they did is they built um, they basically built some channels to channel mm-hmm. the water out, and they would then pump the water out and that would then allow the swamps to drain the peat would dry and then they would start to build on it unfortunately because it was windmills powering the pumps some of them not all but some and the problem is that as the peat dried though it naturally just compacted because peat's very um what's the word Mm -hmm. once you drain it out it just it just packs down because there's not much in it it's just like dead dead yeah. plant matter and grass and stuff. So when you dry that out, it just compacts down, which meant anything you build in it just sinks and that's what happened. But the, the worst part of it was as, it's, as it dried and compacted down, that lowered the ground level significantly, which then made the whole area prone to, prone to flooding again. Mm-hmm. So, that, and so they, they, they were basically at the point where they had to say, well, okay, we'll take the rivers that we have and we're going to build dams. And these dams will have drainage valves to let the water out but it will not let the water flow back into them again. So, at that point in time, they decided it was time to start, you know, the the townships would naturally form, right, around those dams because that was how they would get the goods from one side of the dam to the other because there was no, back in those days, they had no locks because you know how you have locks in a, to raise and lower boats? Well, locks hadn't really been invented at that point. So, you couldn't actually take boats up river you had to cart the stuff around the dam put it on another boat and then go up river and the bigger the cities the bigger the trading points were the bigger the cities were and the two most well-known examples are mm-hmm. I mentioned one before amsterdam and another well-known one is uh, rotterdam so that's a brief history of the netherlands i guess and how they've sort of fought back against the the poor hand that they were dealt but the lessons that you can learn from how they've dealt with it would stand the rest of the world in good stead, I think, for mm-hmm. what is inevitably coming, which is the sea levels are going to rise to a point where we're going to have to do something about storm surges. We're going to have to do something about things like the uh, the drainage system, like stormwater drains. So stormwater drains will drain mm-hmm. out to the river, the ocean, whatever. As the sea levels rise, they will start to reverse flow and you'll start to have, you know, for example, in Brisbane, we have, uh, a couple of uh, areas of the city that go under under extreme king tides already, and uh, there's signs. And you'll drive around um, coming into Fortitude Valley. There's a few spots. There's another one near Bowen Hills, and you'll see the yellow signs out once every oh I don't know nine ten months, not often. And 
and the sign will be up, you know, it says, um, you know, warning, do not park cars in the following streets because, you know, there's a super high, huge king tide today. And that's how it'll start, right? Is that will become more regular and mm-hmm. it'll become a little bit more regular, a little bit more regular. And then that is when people realize, oh, the sea levels are rising. Oh, this is, we should probably do something about this or, hmm, oh dear. The funny thing is, I don't really have too much more to add about it. I just thought it was interesting to talk about because people just have this strange idea that everything lasts forever and it doesn't. Like you look at a city, like the city's always going to be there. There wasn't there. There's a city in the Mediterranean. Was it in, was in Crete? Uh, whatever. They called it. There, there's been a few cities like the, uh, you know, it was built at ocean level at the time or whatever. There's a whole bunch of like cities, if you go in the Mediterranean, that are underwater. Not by much water, but underwater. And yeah. that they've been taken by rising sea levels. And those sea levels have been you know, up for a thousand years. Someday in the future, maybe when anyone listening to this podcast um, is long gone, um, some city that you've been to at some point in your life will be underwater. I think that that's inevitable. We might be able to stop it. We might be able to hold the water back you know, for a while, but eventually it's just going to become very difficult and very expensive. And at some point, you're going to have to say, well, that's it, we're done. And I wonder though, someday, if people are going to stop with their obsession of living by the ocean or living by the river, because it's really been a long time since we've needed to, because we don't rely on boats to bring our goods to us anymore. So we don't need the waterways for that. And as for drinking water, we build dams that are that are inland we treat the water and we pump it to our houses. We don't need to live by the ocean other than the fact that it's pretty. So, yeah. I do wonder at what point that will start to change. Maybe someday. But anyway, there you go. What do you think? That's a lot to think about. The worst part of it is there's precious little we can do about it. You yeah. know? I mean, if you believe that it is all caused by burning fossil fuels, and it may well be, I mean, I don't know, probably. But if it is, it's like um, there's a thing called hysteresis. Do you know what hysteresis is? I do not. That's a term I'm unfamiliar with. Okay. It's, I'm trying to think of the, where the, the name came from. Uh, the idea is that there's a, there's a momentum of sorts like electrically. <clears throat> so as as your magnetic field, let's say it's a, a transformer, as the magnetic field is establishing, it has a certain amount of, 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 of energy in that magnetic field. If you turn off the electrical current, then on the input side, the magnetic field will start to collapse. But there's a time delay between the t- power being turned off on mm-hmm. the primary side and the power disappearing from the secondary side because the magnetic field has to collapse. That time delay between switching on and off um, essentially is a, is a hysteresis. And if it is true that burning fossil fuels is causing the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere to go up, there's no question about that. But if that's mm-hmm. what's causing the global warming and the sea level rises, if that's what it is that's causing it, well, then, if you were to stop all CO2 emissions today, like all of them across the world, 
there's still going to be a, an environmental momentum that's already been kicked off. And people say there's like a critical tipping point. Maybe there is, maybe there isn't. We just don't know enough to know for sure. But what we do know is that the sea levels are rising. That's all we know for sure. As for what's causing it, that's open for debate. And if I was a climatologist, maybe I'd be debating that, but I'm not. So anyway, so there you go. Um, if you want to talk more about this, you can reach me on Twitter at John Chigi, or you can follow Pragmatic Show to specifically see show announcements and other related stuff. Remember, of course, Pragmatic is now part of the Engineered Network, and it also has an account at engineered underscore net. That has announcements announcements about the network and all the shows, and you can check them out at engineered.network. People are also really loving Causality and Nutrium, so if you like Pragmatic, check those out as well. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with Vic, what's the uh, best way to get in touch with you, mate? They can find me on Twitter at VicHudson1. Fantastic. Uh, if you'd like to send any feedback about the show or the network, please use the feedback form uh, on the engineer.network site. That's where you'll also find the show notes for this episode. If you're enjoying Pragmatic and you'd like to support the show, the best way you can do that is to become a patron via Patreon. It's at patreon.com slash johnchigi or one word. So if you'd like to contribute something or anything, it's all very much appreciated. There's also a few perks in there like access to the raw show notes and showbackers will have named thank yous at the end of each episode too. So check it out. It all helps. And if we reach our first funding goal, then we'll, I'll be doing an extra episode of Causality every month. And we can, uh, and we'll see how we go. Anyway, so uh, thank you everyone for listening, and uh, thank you, Vic. Thank you, John. Always a pleasure. <laughs>